You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Bow with me, please, for a word of prayer. God in heaven, we are thankful for your word and the testimony it is to us and the truth that it it conveys to us. We pray that all would come this morning to behold the wonder and glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, that we'd make much of him, and that our hearts would be full of praise towards him, who's done so much for us. Oh God, please save sinners and draw men and women towards this dear Savior of ours as he's lifted up among us, and strengthen all of us, empower the preaching and hearing of the word, and guide all that is said and done in Christ's name, amen. Since the Last Supper, we we looked at the Last Supper several months ago now, and since the Last Supper, it's been a steady spiral into dark depravity. Things just seem to get worse and worse, and then accelerate along the way towards this dark depravity. Worse and worse and worse they get. Increasing descent into the abyss, and nobody seems able to put a stop to it. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. You have it begins really in the Lord's Supper with the prediction that Jesus makes that Peter will deny him, and then Peter's pride comes out, and he tries to argue with the Lord claiming that he's better than Jesus thinks he is. And then they go into Gethsemane, and Jesus tells the disciples, stay awake, stay in prayer, and what do they do? They fall asleep. Well, Jesus is off praying in a a prayer so intense it produced drops of blood on his brow. Right from that into Judas' betrayal. Judas shows up with an angry mob there to capture Jesus and of all things betrays him with a kiss. So sinister and depraved it is. Then from that to the show trial before the Sanhedrin where they falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy and the abuse that followed and then it just, you see, it just spirals, doesn't it? It's 
It's an ever-increasing storm of depravity. Worse and worse it gets, and nobody seems to be able to put a stop to it. And the show trial and the Sanhedrin that leads to the abuse and the spitting and the mocking of Jesus, and then Peter's denial. Three times Peter denies our Lord, followed by Judas's suicide. Nothing good's happening. It goes down and down and down and down. This steady descent that gets faster and faster and faster and faster. Judas' suicide is followed by the show trial before Pontius Pilate, where Pilate, despite knowing better, capitulates to an angry mob of thousands of people that demand that Jesus be crucified. If you could imagine the level of depravity that would bring up such a scene. It's thousands of people demand that our Christ be crucified. And then he's abused, he's mocked, he's humiliated, shamed, and led to the cross where they nail him to the cross, and he hangs there. And to even pronounce it more, darkness descends upon the earth for a period of three hours at high noon. Darkness at noon. An increasing descent into the worst of human depravity, where the worst aspects of the human heart are put on full display in these hours leading up to the death of Christ. And then it ends. With him, as the text says, in verse 50, yielding up his spirit, or as the King James says famously, he gave up the ghost, where he willingly dies. So that at his death, in the moment of his death, when he gives up the ghost, it's all done. It's finished, it's done, it's done, it's done, it's done, it's done. Done. The moment that he had been born for, that he'd been living for, that he'd been working towards, it was all there accomplished, and he gave up the ghost, and atonement was made. And you'll note that nobody's talking about it. The Sanhedrin isn't talking about this great accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Certainly Pontius Pilate's not talking about the great accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Peter's run away scared. All the disciples are in, in hiding. And the greatest moment in history, nobody is bearing witness to it. And even Jesus himself is silent because he's dead. And yet, and yet, it's almost as if The universe can't contain itself because everything erupts and finally we have some good news is heaven bursts forth with a pronounced salute to the accomplished work of our Savior. Everyone else is quiet, but heaven sends forth, as you could say, fireworks to declare 
what has been accomplished. RCH Lenski, commenting on this, he said, Jesus is dead, his lips are silent, but now God speaks in a language of his own. Suddenly, as I look at the five headings of our text this morning, five things happen that are very significant. Is providence, God himself has orchestrated a grandiose, substantial, marked, and pronounced salute. It's like a 21-gun salute in the sky at what Christ did. The darkness becomes light. The temple veil is torn. The earth quakes. The dead rise. And then the unthinkable, the great grand finale. The men who were complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ make an orthodox statement of belief. This is something else. Heaven lights up a brilliant display to salute and honor the work of Christ with the grand finale. If nobody else is going to say it, the ones who were responsible for his murder and watched him die and heartlessly gambled away his clothing as he hanged there on the cross saluted him by declaring that he's the Son of God. So let's look at this. Let's look at this. Point one, darkness becomes light. I talked about this last week. So this is the first point. Darkness becomes light. And we noted this, that in verse 45, if you just look briefly with me, last week's text, if I do a bit of review... It says, and now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And so that's about noon till three, noontime till three. There's darkness. And this is a darkness that is strange. And why is the darkness strange? Well, because it's high noon. It's the brightest time of the day. And yet at high noon there's darkness. And it says that the darkness covered all the land. And I noted that the, the, there were reports of darkness, historically, reports of darkness as far away as Rome and Egypt, historically. And the word land there, it can mean all the earth, or it can simply be isolated to the region of Israel. I think it's ambiguous what it means. But whatever it means, I believe it. And given the historical accounts that there was darkness in Egypt and there was darkness as far away as Rome, it could have very well been that this was darkness over the entire earth. And as you look at this and you think about the darkness over the earth and then all of a sudden the light breaking into the earth, and then as we get into our text further today, the temple veil breaks, the earthquakes, the dead rise. Well, what you have is, is you have almost a throwback to Genesis 1. Because what happens in Genesis 1 is there's creation. And what do you have in creation? Well, there's darkness and then there's light. 
And then there's great happenings on the earth. And what does the earth do? Well, out of the earth comes human life. And then human life is put where? Into the great temple of God, which is the Garden of Eden, where the presence of God dwells. And so as you examine this text and you see, well, darkness becomes light and the earth quakes and, and there's now access to the temple and, and men start coming out of the earth, what you have, it's almost like this is somewhat of a recreation that's going on. Something substantial is happening here. And it all starts by noting that the darkness became light. It started at noon, there was darkness, and at three the lights came on. In verse 46 of yesterday's or last week's text, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, crying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And so it was at the ninth hour, it was the ninth hour that the lights came on again. And so it seems that his, just as you're moving into this ninth hour, is the lights are about to turn on on the earth again. This is where you pick up in verse 46. And so in verse 50, it's like he gives up the ghost and the lights come on. So the stage, the theater of God's earth is dark. And you reach this climactic moment and then God turns on the spotlights and lights everything up again. At the ninth hour, the sun shines again. Darkness becomes light. And as darkness becomes light, the first heading, the second would be that the temple veil is torn. At the same time, they happen simultaneously. As Jesus gives up the ghost, he pronounces it as finished. Lights come on, temple veil is torn. Again, miracle. I've got to explain to you what the temple veil is. But in the temple, there was a place called the holy place. And then in the holy place, there was a place called the most holy place. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And the high priest could only enter the most holy place once a year. So nobody's allowed in the most holy place but one man. And that man's not allowed in the most holy place but one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And the most holy place, because it is this secret place where only one man's allowed for one day of a year, is shrouded in mystery. Because nobody sees in there except for one man. And so all of this mystery is attached to it and this curiosity and this awe because it is a veiled spot. And, and the spot being shrouded in mystery proclaims the unapproachable holiness of God. Is the most holy place is unapproachable? So God is unapproachable. Is God dwells in unapproachable light? So man cannot approach the most holy place. It's shrouded in the mystery, in a mystery, and it points to the fact that the God who designed it is unapproachable because we know that the earthly temple is simply a shadow of the heavenly temple. And so it's pointing to the fact that the place in which God dwells, because he dwells in it, is unapproachable and mysterious. The unapproachable mystery of God. And the holy place is closed off by a veil. If you look at verse 51, where we picked up today. 
See what it says. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So it's cut off by a veil. The holy place and the most holy place are separated by a veil, a curtain, so that you cannot see into the most holy place. The veil itself is, I guess, an early form of it is described in Gen or Exodus 26 where it speaks of the veil that was put in the tabernacle in front of the most holy place. In Exodus 26 verse 31 says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood with gold, with hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat and the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. So the Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place. And nobody sees it. It's covered and it's shrouded in mystery and it's designed to pronounce awe. One man gets to see it and only once a year. And when you think of the veil, the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, so you cannot see into the most holy place, when you think of the curtain, some of you might be tempted to picture like a shower curtain or something, a flimsy shower curtain. Well, that's not accurate. The, the curtain was very heavy and the curtain was very thick. So it was, it was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide was this curtain. So that's, that's a big curtain, right? And it wasn't made out of frail material. There were 24 doubles per thread, they say. So it's a thick threading. It's a very thick canopy that separates it. And it's heavy. And so very thick and so very heavy and so very high and so very wide that it would not be apt or prone to tear on its own. Designed to protect you from seeing inside the most holy place because it is the most holy place after all. And our sinful selves are not compatible with most holiness. And at the moment of Christ's death, gives up the ghost. As the other gospel writer tells us, he said, it is finished. All the atonement has been accomplished. The moment he'd been living for is done. At the moment of Christ's death, the lights in the heavens go on, and the canopy of the most holy place is cut right down the middle by miracle of God. And so you could see that this would startle them. In verse 51, it says, behold, like, wow, this happened. And the light would have bounced off the walls right into the most holy place. So all of a sudden, it's lit up, and you can see in there. Whereas nobody's seen in there but the high priest one day a year. So all of a sudden, these inner chambers are opened and this mysterious place that has been veiled 
is opened. And it demonstrates something. Thankfully, the author of Hebrews helps us out with that because the tearing up of the curtain that separates the most holy place from everyone else demonstrates that Christ has now crossed the threshold into heaven on our behalf. He's now entered the holy place. Not the shadow of the holy place here on earth, but the real living color holy place in heaven. And he's done it on our behalf. And so Hebrews chapter 10 actually explains this well for us. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so the, it's like the barrier has been lifted. And so now we who were once far off and we who were once alienated from the holy place of God have now in Christ entered into the holy place because Christ, the moment he gave up the ghost, went right across that threshold and symbolically the curtain was sliced in half. It's open. The barriers have been broken. They've been torn down. And beyond this, there's several th implications of this that play out in our Bibles. Is the holy place we now have access to is, and one of the implications is that the barriers of separation with, embedded within the ceremonial law of Israel, they, they were designed to teach that nation that they were separate from other nations, to keep separate from other nations. Just as God is holy and separate, so Israel was to be separate from other nations. And so, and, and being separate from other nations meant that they had no commonality, no commonwealth with Gentiles, with non-Jews, right? But when this curtain is cut wide open and Jesus crosses the threshold into heaven, all of a sudden, Jew and Gentile now have equal access to God. So the Jew and Gentile are now united, and as Paul tells us, is the barrier has come down. United in Jesus Christ. This is why we would say that, that, that racial prejudice should have no place, racial animosity should have no place in the church. Why? Because, and, and by the way, Christ is the only answer to racial animosity. It's not through wokeness and social justice, all this other stuff. It's Christ. Because in Christ, the barriers have been broken down so that now there's a unification, a true unification and a true brotherhood that takes place in the Lord Jesus, as we see within Jew and Gentile. And, and even embedded in the law, there were little aspects that continually reminded the people that they were to be separate. So for example, you, you'll read, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll read about, you know, you can't sow two different types of seed in a, in a field because the field itself is to be, is to emblemize, is to demonstrate the separation that Israel is to be experiencing, right? Or you're not supposed to have two different types of fabric in a clothing, in a piece of clothing. Why? Again, because it, it's reminding them of the need for separation, 
within this ceremonial law. And so at the moment of this thing being torn open and of, and of now us having access to the inner chambers of God by the finished work of Jesus Christ, it breaks down the barrier between us and God. It breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And all of these other little reminders that were embedded into their ceremonial law are also broken down. This is glorious. The mysteries of the promise of the gospel are no longer mysteries because now we can get behind the curtain in Jesus Christ. And for years, you know, the Jews were wondering, well, what are the mysteries of the promise and how are the promises going to unfold? And, and the angels longed to kind of peer over time and see into the mysteries. And then finally, we see the mysteries because it's been cut open and the mystery is, is that all have equal access to God through Jesus Christ, through salvation. God has, in one sense, unveiled his glory. Unveiled his glory. And if you remember when I preached on transfiguration, there was two times in the Old Testament, one for Elijah and one for Moses, when they longed to see the face of God. And they, they, God wouldn't let them. He said, No. And then they stared into the face of Jesus Christ, glowing with glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, glowing like the sun. And they stared into the face of Christ with unveiled face. So that we who are in Christ, as, the, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, get to worship him, how? With unveiled faces. Gloriously unashamed before God, because Christ himself has crossed this threshold into the Holy of Holies. It's a beautiful thing. Matthew Henry said he died to bring us to God and in order thereunto to rend that veil of guilt and wrath which interposed between us and him. So picture, picture yourself and picture God and then picture between you and God a barrier of wrath and guilt. You have no access to God because God is angry with you Okay, and you are guilty before God, and then all of a sudden Christ rends the veil, and now you have access to God. This is the picture. And so this speaks to us. Like, this should really speak to Christians, because I think there's some Christians out there who are constantly ridden with guilt and, and, and constantly are afraid to go to God in prayer, or afraid to have access to God, and what this tells us is that yeah, like, you don't have half access to God. You don't have 75% access to God. You don't even have 99.99% access to God. You have all the time 100% access to God because of what Christ has done. Unashamed because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so you, as a Christian, should boldly and confidently Knowing how holy God is and how sinful you are, and because of Christ, boldly approach God because Christ has now gone across this threshold and he's finished the work and he's made the atonement. It's done, it's finished. And those of you who are not in Christ, you have no access to God right now. In fact, there is a great barrier of guilt and sin and shame and wrath between you and God. But I want to invite you to come to Jesus. I entreat you to come to Jesus. Why? So that you can cross that threshold in Christ too. And, you, and I'm not, like, you don't come to Jesus by your works. You just come to Jesus and trust him. And he takes you across that threshold into the presence of God.
So this is a great eruption from heaven that is Christ gives up the ghost, the lights come on, just like they did in creation, and then man now has access to the temple of God as he was denied after the fall. And what did God put between man and the Garden of Eden? He put a barrier, flaming cherubims, to keep us from that temple of God. And now what has happened in Jesus Christ just is even better than the creation, is the lights have come on and we now have access to God himself through Jesus Christ. Things are being undone here. These creation, recreation symbols are striking us. And heaven has erupted and the lights have gone on and the veil is torn. And with the lights going on and the veil being torn, what else happens? Well, the earthquakes. It tells us at the end of verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So this is going on at the same time. Like, could you imagine? It's like, it's like God is conducting an orchestra. You know, he's got his little stick in his hand orchestrating the orchestra, right? And it's, okay, lights go on. And, okay, temple torn. Earthquake. Right? Like, it's all just happening at once. And, and everything's just erupting in glory and praise and thanksgiving to God. And verse 51 tells us about this earthquake. Now, if you think about the earthquake, there's always symbols involved in these things, so it could be that the earth is reacting negatively to receiving the murdered blood of Christ, just as it did with Abel's blood. It could be that the earth is shaking in horror of the sin that is now just being committed, and it could be a sign of judgment and wrath from God, but if those were the cases, they would be the only negative sign within this either text and within this text because every other sign is interpreted positively for us everything else is positive so before it it's positive the light comes on it's positive that the veil is torn and then after it it's positive that the dead rise and it's positive that the centurions claim that Jesus is the son of god all that's positive so if this is negative it's the only negative thing here so I tend to think it's positive. And this is showing God's power, I believe, to save his people. And this happens from time to time in the Bible with earthquakes. So, for example, in Psalm 68, verses 7 and 8, talking about God's great salvation, it says, O God, when you went out before your people and when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. This was a sign of, of God's blessing leading his people forward. Okay, and God provided for his people and restored his languished inheritance. Or, for example, Psalm 114, verses 1 through 4. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. And so... I think you have the picture similarly like you do with the Exodus that 
the earth can't contain itself over the heavenly realities that have just transpired. Like something real has happened within the spiritual realm, and the earth is taking note of it, so it's shaking. God's orchestrating it all as he, as he does to proclaim this. So the very foundations of the earth come alive to declare the mighty saving power of God to save his people. So strong is the earthquake that it actually splits rocks. So there's earthquakes in the Middle East, but this is a substantial earthquake where rocks are being split. And here's the thing. Look, the Pharisees have attempted to silence the praise of Jesus in the temple. They don't want the children singing hallelujah. So there's no praise of Jesus in the temple. The disciples all run hid. Peter's denied him three times. Judas has hanged himself. You're not getting any praise from the Sanhedrin. You're certainly not getting any praise from Pontius Pilate and the Romans. So at this point in time, and Jesus is silent because remember, he's dead now. So at this point in time, there's no praise of God on the face of the earth. The earth is silent of the praise of God. But look, if if Pilate's not going to praise God, if the Sanhedrin's not going to praise God, if the Jews aren't going to praise God, if the disciples aren't going to praise God, God is going to make the rocks cry out. And they're going to praise God. And so the shaking of the earth and the shattering of the rocks in this moment is declaring the mighty works of God, I believe. The rocks, I believe, are crying out in praise as redemption has now dawned upon this groaning earth. Won't you join them? Because if you're silent, God will make the rocks cry out. And they will. Won't you join them? So you have the light. I mean, this is something else. You've got a picture. What's, and all in a moment, too. Really? Like, all in a moment. The lights come on. The veil is torn. The earth rattles and shakes. In fact, there's, there's historical reports of about 33 A.D. of the earth shaking so much that there were cracks within the temple at that time. But historical accounts notwithstanding, historical records notwithstanding, the Bible has an accurate record, and so we believe this happened. The lights came on, the veil was torn, the earth quaked, and, fourthly, the dead raised. The dead raised. The dead came to life. The dead shot out of the earth. There was a few that came to life. The earth brought them out, just as man was made from earth in the Garden of Eden. So here the earth produces dead men to life as they rise. Now some saints of God actually came back to life, according to verse 52 and 53. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There's, there's, two ways to, there's two ways to interpret that, some debate over this. The passage could mean, on one hand, it could mean they left the tombs at the moment that the earth was shaking, the lights were coming on, the temple was being torn, and then visited Jerusalem after the resurrection, which was three days later, as you know. So, R, they resurrected and visited Jerusalem three days later after the resurrection. So there's two ways to interpret that. And I, it's ambiguous. It's not very clear. It doesn't really matter. People rose from the dead. But I think in the context, you're left to assume 
that the raising of the dead occurred at the same time as the lights came on, the temple veil was torn, and the earth was shaking. And then after the resurrection, they went down to visit Jerusalem. I think that's what you're left to think. But again, it looks like creation and recreation, doesn't it? Light, earth, man, shaking, temple, it's all there. And it's a spectacular eruption. It's a, it's a pronounced salute from God in heaven, the men on the face of the earth. The face of the earth is silent. And so what is God going to do? Well, he's going to make the rocks praise him, and then he's going to raise men up from the dead to praise him. Someone's going to praise him. He's going to make it happen. And then finally, lights go on, veils torn, earthquakes, dead men rise. And finally, it's like you have the grand finale. It's like the greatest spectacle of them all. This is like save the best for last. The centurions acknowledge Christ. The greatest part of the fireworks show is at the end of it. This is unbelievable. Verse 54, it says, When the centurion, and pay attention to what it says, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion and those with him, meaning the group of men that were sitting at the foot of the cross, gambling away Jesus' clothing as he died and participating in the mockery and likely led him to the cross and drove the nails into his hands and feet. Saw the whole thing go down. And as they watched the whole thing go down, at the end of it, they were able to make this orthodox confession by saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And by the way, don't miss out on what they're saying here. That's, that's just as much a political statement as it is a religious statement because you have to remember that for the Romans, Caesar was the son of God. He claimed, it as, he claimed as much. And so you have the Roman centurions under Caesar, and then you have Christ. So Caesar's claiming to be the, the son of God, and then you have Christ claiming to be the son of God. And these Roman legions are under Caesar in rank. And then witnessing what they did at the death of Jesus Christ and all these crazy things that are happening around them and how Jesus carried on on the cross, witnessing what they did, it's by their words at the very least, there's a change of allegiance somehow. They're declaring that Christ is the Son of God or was the Son of God. I don't think their knowledge is fully realized. I still think they need to fill in some gaps here, but something significant happened where these men who were mocking him and these men who forced Simon to carry the cross and these men who drove the nails into his hands and these men who gambled away his clothing at the foot of the cross, they watched and they listened as the people jeered and then at the end of it, they said, this is the Son of God or was the Son of God. And by the way, the, the, the Jews around were not doing this. What were they doing to Jesus? They were mocking him for claiming he was the Son of God, and these Roman soldiers took it all in. So if, if you look up at chapter 27, verse 40, what were they saying to him while he was on the cross? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Or down in verse 43, something similar. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So the Roman soldiers, watching this all go on, seeing them mock Jesus for claiming that he's the Son of God, 
have now declared, they've drawn the conclusion in their own minds that yes, indeed, he was the son of God. And, and it was, if, if you're paying attention, which I hope you are and you were, if you're paying attention, you noted that what was, what was the phrase that the Sanhedrin got Jesus on whereby they accused him of blasphemy? His claim to being the son of God. So if you go back and you look at that text in chapter 26, verse 63 through 65, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, this is him before the Sanhedrin, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. And then they just went nuts and declared blasphemy. And really, it just really went down from there. And so you have all of these people mocking Jesus for his claim that he's the Son of God. You have the Sanhedrin accusing him of blasphemy and, and sentencing him to be crucified because he claims to be the Son of God. And by the way, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, what does Satan do with Jesus? Satan questions whether Jesus is the Son of God also. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, And the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. In Matthew 14, verse 33, the disciples, after the storm, pronounced that Jesus is the Son of God. And so this isn't just a climactic moment at the cross. This is a climactic moment in the Gospel of Matthew. And not only is this a climactic moment in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's a climactic moment in world history because the ripping of the temple veil did what? Well, it didn't only just give us access to God, it opened up access to God to Jew and Gentile alike. And who are the first people to declare that Jesus is the Son of God after his death but Gentile soldiers? And so the, the Gentile soldiers themselves who crucified Christ are now declaring that the Sanhedrin was wrong to de declare that Jesus is a blasphemer. And, and you see, and so the trial all along is from a human perspective. From our perspective, it was humanity that was on trial. But from the human perspective, what was on trial all along through the Gospel of Matthew was whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. Satan questioned it. And finally, the disciples make a big statement, yes, he is. And then you get to the Sanhedrin, and then they have him on trial for declaring that he's the Son of God. And then here we go, he's on the cross. They're mocking him for claiming that he's the Son of God. And then what happens at this climactic moment? But a bunch of Gentile soldiers declare that truly this one is the Son of God, or was a Son of God. So this is significant. And, and, and here's, here's how things work. You've got to understand God's power and God's grace. Here's how things work. The disciples had cut and run. The temple wouldn't let there be worship of Jesus Christ in it. Judas hanged himself. Peter denied him three times. Look, if, if the people who declare themselves to be God's people won't declare that Jesus is the Son of God, God will raise up the most heinous and wicked criminals and save them and redeem them in a moment. And they'll declare that he's the Son of God. Where's the future of the church going to come from? 
Where's the future leaders of the church going to come from? Where's the evangelists and the pastors and the people that are going to bring this nation back to God? Where are they going to come from? Well, you might be raising them, or maybe God's going to raise them up from uh, that we're a bunch of drug addicts in the gutter, and they're going to become the leaders. But this is how God does things. It could be some guy injecting heroin in his, in his arm right now, and he will be saved, and he will be raised up by God to be a great evangelist. You don't know. Well, this is the way God works. He, he, he takes accurate professions of faith from seemingly unlikely places. And so the light goes on, the veil is torn, the earthquakes, the dead are raised. There's a profession from the soldiers who are complicit in his crucifixion. And could you imagine the absolute horror and shame of those soldiers? Is, they, is it dawned on them, this was the Son of God, is it dawned on them, and this is what we did to him? And this is how we treated him? Like, how about a crushing weight to realize that? We were, ha- we were making sport of this guy. And then it just, it kind of, the light bulb goes on in their head. He was the son of God. And we just killed him. And, and then how would, how would you like to be the soldiers in that moment? And then how would you like to be the soldiers in the moment if they realize what his death just purchased our atonement? Forgiveness. Pardon, mercy, grace, right there because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so you imagine the irony in that moment if they realized it. The text doesn't tell us they realized it. It just tells us that they said he was the son of God. But you can imagine the irony in the moment if they realized it, that the ones who killed Jesus realized that the death of Jesus is what will forgive them for killing Jesus. And that's the way you should feel. Because every one of us are complicit in the death of Jesus. And every one of us should have a level of horror and be aghast over our sin when we learn that he is the righteous son of God. And then there should be an overwhelming sense of relief when we realize he died to make atonement. And if Pilate's not going to acknowledge it, Heaven will, and heaven will make its pronounced statement. And if the Sanhedrin's not going to deny it, and they're going to try and bury it, they're going to deny it, heaven will acknowledge it and set out praises so that the rocks praise him. I mean, look, there's no newspaper headings in Jerusalem in 33 AD that say the Son of God atoned for the sins of the world. That's not trending on Twitter. It's not going viral on the Internet. There's no guy heralding it in the street at this point because the only ones Jesus had taught to preach are hiding in a corner somewhere. And so what does God do? He doesn't need us. He will raise up people to declare his praises when he wants to. And if the church is going to run and hide, God will raise up someone from somewhere. This is phenomenal. It's beautiful, and how do we know what happened? Well, we know what happened because there were two or three witnesses to it. There were also many women there looking on from a distance in verse 55 who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. One of the other gospels tells us that his mother Mary was there. Could you imagine her relief when she realized, well, somebody acknowledged that he was the son of God? And they witnessed it. So we have the account. How do you have evidence established as, from a biblical standpoint? You have corroborated evidence on the basis of two or three witnesses that corroborate together. 
And that's how you get evidence. And you have two or three witnesses in these women who corroborate the testimony that, yes, indeed, these soldiers said, truly, this was the Son of God. Christ atoned for our sins. Everyone else was silent. But heaven itself made a pronounced salute to him in his accomplished work. The lights went on. The earth quaked. The veil was torn. The dead were raised. And then someone opened their mouths and pronounced that truly he is the Son of God. And this must be us. We must join the chorus. And if we don't join it, God will raise someone else to do it. And if they don't join it, God will make the, work, the rocks sing his praises. Because he's worth it. And he accomplished what he set out to do. He made full atonement. And the work is done. And now we have access to the Holy of Holies because of the blood of the cross. Bow with me for a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that he's purchased for us. And we are grateful. We are grateful that you, God in heaven, have made your praises known and made your son's goodness known. And we thank you, Father, for this, and we pray that you would work in our hearts, that we may add to this chorus that erupted on that day, declaring that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is done, that atonement has been made, and truly, this is the Son of God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.